They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's, uh, it's real. It's happening. As Evan said, we're, I'm no longer an embedded church planter. I'm a, I'm a church planter. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Our first Sunday is in two weeks at Wilson Middle School um, in the heart of City Heights, which is the heart of Mid-City, which is the neighborhood, the community that we have uh, such a big heart for. I said heart three times. We have our branding now. We have like a logo and stuff, and it's like real. And so there's a QR code up there if you uh, want to follow our journey snag that. That'll take you to the newsletter. We'd love to have you guys praying for us and um, yeah, just hearing and staying updated with what we got going on. So much has been happening this past few months. And in these early stages of All Saints, uh, it really feels like we're participating in the church we just read about in Acts chapter 2. We've had these worship nights that have been foundational for our community where we seek the Spirit's guidance, but gather really to just lift up Jesus with no agenda, but to make him, make much of him. Amen. Uh, We've had these family dinners where we've begun to practice the way of Jesus together, young and old, multicultural people from different parts of the city, different states that moved here, sharing meals together. We like buy food from some random uh, restaurant in City Heights and we just kind of mange, you know, that's Italian. Um, We just kind of eat and just like pig out and, and have a good time, play games together and be community so that we can figure out and actually grow genuine love for one another. We started a prayer room to humble ourselves right from the beginning and to invite God into everything we do, to orbit around his presence in tangible, sacrificial ways together. We've even gotten to serve our city and some of those who are hurting and experienced uh, their homes being destroyed and their possessions being washed away in the floods the last couple weeks together and just meet the hurting right where they're at. Um, And we look forward and long for more opportunities to do that in our city. And now in this new season, we're transitioning to regular worship gatherings where we're going to preach the gospel, take the bread and cup, and sing songs to Jesus every week together, like forever, hopefully, (laughs) you know, indefinitely, multi-generational plan. And that's going to start February 25th, 10 a.m., Wilson Middle School. This is like a soft launch we're viewing it as, uh, where our committed core, some of whom are over here, my little like the homies, um, the sent ones among us who know that God has called us to all saints. We're going to be figuring out our systems and our setup. We're going to teach through our first series on the family values of our church and how we're trying to follow Jesus together and shape culture. But this is also a great time for folks in this room um, who are still praying about whether or not to join all saints to come and get a feel for what Sundays are going to be like with us. And then after a few weeks of that, Easter is going to be our official launch. We're going to make much of the resurrected king. And from that point on, we're just going to be 
going into the neighborhood, reaching people, telling people about Jesus, starting communities, just doing the Jesus stuff that we all are called to do. And I'm, I'm super excited about that. Uh, it's, it's new and it's fun and it's exhilarating, but it's also pretty stressful and stretching at times, <laughs> especially for me and my family. Yet God has been with us every step of the way. And I know that that's in no small part to your prayers and to the people in this community who are seeking the Father on our behalf and are blessing us. And so please don't stop once we leave. Like, keep us in your hearts um, and fight that battle on our behalf through prayer, even if you're firmly rooted at Park Hill. Amen. That's what it means to be family, and we're going to need that now more than ever. So that's kind of the All Saints pitch. That's where we're at. We're super excited. But this morning, we're, we're really going to dive deep into what the church of Jesus is actually supposed to look like. And then we're going to look at one of the core practices that helps us get there, this, this practice of prayerfully reading through Scripture uh, or the apostles' teaching. And as we figure out how to follow Jesus together, we have to remember, even when we see a beautiful picture like we just saw in Acts, that following Jesus together is both messy and beautiful. Like, you can't not expect mess when you have all these different people from different backgrounds and cultures and experiences with God coming together around the person of Jesus to, to try to form something that many of us have never seen before. We've only dreamed of or longed for, but we know it's true and we know it's possible and we want to give our lives to see this thing. Remember the big idea of the book of Acts. The good news of the risen King Jesus leads to the formation of communities like this one, where individuals like you from various backgrounds are treated with equality as they pledge their allegiance to Jesus and live according to his teachings. Like that right there is the goal of all saints, and that's the goal of Park Hill and any church that confesses Jesus is Lord. So our passage for today is the beginning of that, the formation of that first multi-ethnic community centered around this risen king, bound together by the fact of his resurrection, their allegiance to him and his teaching. And this whole thing kicks off on the day of Pentecost, which we looked at last week. Just to summarize, the, the, you guys remember what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down on the first believers gathered in this upper room to worship Jesus. And the Spirit fills them with fire and they start speaking in other languages and people outside hear about it and they're like, what's going on? And so the Spirit then empowers a man named Peter, one of Christ's early followers and an apostle, uh, which we'll learn about more in a second. And he preaches the gospel of Jesus to more than 3,000 people. He tells them that God sent his only son to die for your sin. And if you put your trust and faith in him, you can live with him forever. And 3,000 people repent and accept that message and get saved and baptized. Was anybody here last Sunday for Baptism Sunday? Yeah. Wasn't that beautiful? There were so many people who said yes to Jesus, who followed him into the waters of baptism and obedience. Not quite 3,000, but it's remarkable anytime anyone makes a public profession of faith in Christ to bind their destiny and identity to his. To say, I'm dead to the old world, my old way of doing things, and now I'm alive in Jesus. And because we're still doing these baptisms, our church is participating in the first practice in life of that first church. We're still empowered by the Spirit to welcome people into this new life with Jesus. And that new life is absolutely beautiful. 
It leads to a whole new reality for the first followers of Jesus. As Evan says last week, it forces them to rethink everything. This is a completely new way of being. A completely new mode of shared life emerges, full of love for one another and commitment to Jesus' teachings, dependent on the Holy Spirit's power and the people that you're sitting next to in the room. A new identity is formed. We're no longer slaves to sin or religion. We're sons and daughters of God the Father. We have a new community to belong to. It's no longer me and my tribe over here, divided in all the ways that the world says we should be. No, now we're the one new family of God, united in Christ. And with that comes a new ethic to be lived out. No longer are we citizens of this world bound to the laws of self-preservation and enemy hate and get what you can while you can, however you can. No, now we pledge our allegiance to Jesus. He's our king and we do what he says. And in that new reality, the church is born. Look again at our, our text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, not just the church, but the people outside the church. And that's the community that the Lord added to daily, those who are being saved. You guys, this is amazing. This is on earth as it is in heaven. Like, heaven has come to Jerusalem through the church. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. would have called the beloved community, where people are treated with equality and love and fairness and kindness, and they're united, and everything that divides them is no longer permitted to have a place in their life. This is what Jesus meant when he prayed, Father, make them one as we are one. This is the new life we are called to. And there's so much that we could unpack in these verses, but I just want to kind of look at the signs. I want to lay them out. Signs of the Spirit-empowered church. Number one, devotion to the apostolic teaching, which is Scripture, right? They gathered around, they, they committed themselves to the practice of reading and receiving and embodying God's Word. They had a daily life oriented around prayer in God's presence, particularly in communion or the breaking of bread. Prayer wasn't just something they did when they felt like it. It was a core part of who they were. And in the midst of that community, there were real miracles, signs, and wonders breaking out. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Acts, but there's some crazy stuff that happens. People's bodies are getting healed. Their eyes are being opened. Dead people are being raised back to life. Those aren't just some cool stories that have spiritual meaning for us to like sit and discuss and see how can we apply. No, these are real people who are being transformed physically by the power of God. It's also marked by table fellowship as the new multicultural family of God eats together for the first time. Evan called it last week a, a, a family of difference. 
young and old, male and female, Jew and non-Jew, rich and poor, slave and free, together around a table, sharing a meal together, washing one another's feet, opening their homes. This is just as big of a miracle in that day, and even in our day, I would argue, as a dead body getting raised back to life. Can you imagine a home in which Democrats and Republicans and this person and that person, like just sitting together, eating and loving and hugging and sharing a life together? Everybody who saw it from the outside was like, what is happening? (laughs) Who are these people? On top of that, there was a generosity marked by shared resources and responsibility for one another. It's so easy to say we're family and just like say those words. But this was a church that was radically giving up their resources to serve one another. I mean, like imagine if somebody in this room uh, had their car swept away in the floods the other week. I mean, it it affected Southeast San Diego, one of the poorest parts of our city, more than it did most other parts of our city. People lost everything. Somebody gets up and shares, I lost at my home, my car was washed away, and then everybody in the room just starts pitching in money. We got you. Here's a new car, you know, like you, we, we got you. Here's food, here's groceries, stay at our house for now. That's what this kind of church was doing. To say that your family means that you take responsibility for one another. Your, your problems and burdens are not my problems and burdens. So they were marked by that. And then that led to this sort of supernatural favor with unbelievers. Like I said, all those who weren't a part of this Jesus community, they saw what was happening. Miracles, signs and wonders, radical love, commitment to this man named Jesus. And you guys are actually like full of joy and life and peace. We want to be around you. I want to come to your house. I want to see what's going on. Like, What's what's good? Help me understand why you are the way that you are. Is that our experience of most churches? (laughs) Like our non-Christian friends are like, I can't wait to come be around them, you know? They're so loving. Hopefully, maybe, not typically. And because of that, it then leads to church multiplication. People get saved and baptized through disciple making, and then they get sent out to recreate and reproduce these communities all across the world, to the ends of the earth. It starts in one place, but then it goes. People are sent to do the same thing, live the same way with new people. Is this like a good thing? (laughs) Is this an exciting vision for reality? Yeah, it is. Every Christian looks at this at some point, I think, and goes like, yes, absolutely. I'm all in. This is what we were meant for. This is what we must create. I'm not an exception. Like, I'm a church planner. I'm like, this is why I'm trying to do this thing, you know? And to an extent, I think that's actually really, really good. Every Christian should revisit Acts 2.42 through 47 often and get convicted, called higher, confronted with the possibilities of Christ's community and contend for the areas where we need to close the gap. Like, I, I think that we should all regularly do that. When I got saved, some of you guys don't know my testimony, might not have heard that message, but uh, long story short, I was uh, tripping on magic mushrooms in a field in New York City, and I heard the devil tell me to drown myself in the river, and all I could say was the name of Jesus and some Bible verses that I learned as a little kid, and when I said the, the verses, the voice of the enemy stopped, and so then the next day, I just started reading the Bible. Like, I, I went on BibleGateway.com and just would read the verse of the day, 
And then I was like, that's not enough. And so then I'd read like the, the passage and I was like, that's not enough. I read the chapter of the day. Then I just read that whole book. Then I'm just like crushing Ephesians on a Tuesday morning, reading through the gospel of Mark. You know, I'm like, yeah, uh, I couldn't get enough. It was literally my daily bread. And so I get passionate about the word of God because God literally used his word to save me in a real way. And I remember when I got to this passage, like I literally remember sitting there thinking, this is what I've been missing my whole life. Like, this is what the world needs. This is what my family needs. They don't need me to make more money and uh, get a better job and just get out of poverty. They need this, (laughs) this Jesus community. And I've been to church, but I've never been to a church like this. Everybody would be Christians if the church just did this stuff, right? It would be easy to believe in Jesus. I was in, like raptured, enraptured by God's vision for human flourishing, and I wanted it for myself. And you guys, it's not just some utopian dream, you know? It's true. It's actually possible to live like this as the spirit-empowered church of God. And like many of you, I've experienced elements of this throughout my walk with Jesus from God's people in God's church. I've experienced love like I've never seen before and acceptance and forgiveness like I've never seen before. People have opened up their own pockets and homes to me when I was broken down and I needed whatever. People walked with me through my most difficult, depressing, dark journeys. The first community that I was a part of was InterVarsity Multi-Ethnic Fellowship and everybody in the room was from a different culture and ethnicity and that was normal Christianity to me when I started. So when I then like went to other churches that weren't about that, I was so confused because <laughs> I was like, like, how can you? Yeah, it was just like a beautiful experience. And so I almost just started saying crazy stuff and I stopped. Uh, (laughs) I'm maturing as a pastor. Uh, And so I've experienced this even from some people in this room, and I think many of you have as well. Yet in the midst of that, it's also easy to look at this text and make an idol out of the ideal rather than moving towards it in faith. So we all want this kind of church, but we often aren't willing to put the work in to get close. We don't contend to close the gap. We complain when when things don't look the way we think they should. Uh, Instead of confronting unhealthy culture and being a part of the solution or asking questions about why things are the way they are, we just run at the first sign of conflict, deny our own failures, and then refuse to celebrate the wins and the thing that a church is actually doing right. Instead of committing to a community for the long run, we just leave and look somewhere else, go church shop and be a consumer in a different community. And and then when we find normal, imperfect humans there too, we rinse and repeat, refusing to grow in unity and give ourselves to becoming something beautiful with folks who are just as flawed as us. Real churches is messy. We all miss and fail and fall short right in the midst of experiencing the beauty and the transformative power of God. It's, it's a both and, like Evan was saying earlier, the messy middle. I think sometimes we look at Acts 2 as like, put it on this pedestal, but even they fell prey to these same shortcomings. Very early on, they were marked by hypocrisy and lying right there in chapter 5. And then racism and division filled the church right there in chapter 6, which you'll look at in a few weeks. But what was their response? They didn't just like stop being Christians. No, they kept fighting for love. 
They leaned in rather than pulled back. They kept pursuing one another because they had a vision of what was possible if they committed themselves to living together in the life that Jesus had called them to, the life that he's calling you and me to here this morning. And so the invitation of Acts 2 is to pursue this kind of community without idolizing it. Amen? And as we look at these signs of the Spirit-empowered church, there's two foundational commitments upon which all the other stuff is built. All the fellowship, multi-ethnic, multicultural, generosity, all that stuff is built upon these two without which it's impossible to have the rest. And that's devotion to the apostles' teaching and a daily life oriented around prayer and presence. The, the breaking of bread, the communion of God, being with his spirit in worship and intimacy. Every church is a church in process. But in that process, these are the two things that will keep us grounded and faithful to God. And they're the same things that will keep all saints grounded and faithful and Park Hill because they're the same things that have kept the church faithful for thousands of years. And so today we're just, we're going to focus on that first one, devotion to the apostles' teaching. Um, and we're going, to, we're going to view it through the lens of the practice of scripture reading. So each, as we go through the series of Acts, there will be times where it's sort of punctuated with a special emphasis on a practice of following Jesus from our rule of life that's available on Park Hill's website. And the first one is, is reading scripture as a, as a way to commune and to connect with God. Because even as we read the Bible, we must remember that scripture reading is for prayer in the sense that we read scripture to pray better. It's the same with fasting and Sabbath and all the other practices because prayer equals intimacy with the Father through the Spirit of Jesus. And that's the point of every Christian practice. Like, that's the point of your discipleship with Jesus, to get closer and more intimate with the Father through the Spirit of Jesus. And if your scripture reading doesn't lead to that, it's empty and, and kind of like useless, you know? And so we'll close with some practical ways that scripture reading connects to prayer but first, we need to unpack what we mean by the apostles' teaching. Like, how exactly is the apostles' teaching scripture? What do we mean by that? You guys all right? Wow. I'm doing so much better than first service. Wow. Uh, all right. So when it comes to the Bible, we all need guidance and understanding as we try to interpret this ancient library of texts that was written to people in vastly different cultures than our own. Yet there is a beautiful unity recognized in the basic historic Christian understanding of this book that the church has affirmed for 2,000 years. And if you're here for our God Breathe series, you'll remember this. The Bible at its core tells the story of God's acts through history to save and rescue a people for himself. Uh, we did an amazing series that was all about this last year, unpacking all the nooks and crannies of what scripture is and isn't. And so if you're still curious and have questions about that, or maybe you need a refresher, I would encourage you to revisit the God Brief series on the website. We all have questions about the Bible. Like that's, un we, it's just normal and good. Questions about this book are welcome and encouraged in this community. And yet the core truth remains it's telling a story of a God who loves us and his acts to save us and rescue us for himself. And so the apostles' teaching specifically, more than any other part of the scripture, emphasizes this core understanding of the Bible. The apostles' teaching, the, the books of the New Testament, 
are what focus on the climax of God's salvation story in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the people who wrote these books are the people who interpreted Jesus' life and the Holy Spirit's activity and ministry in real time as it was happening, and then they passed it down to the future generations of the church all the way to you and me today. So that brings up a question. How do we know that we can trust these guys' words? How do we know that we can trust the apostles' teachings as scripture? Well, according to 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, He's talking about Jesus there, and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. He's saying the same thing over and over. Why? So that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So what is an apostle? Evan often uses the, the uh, analogy of deputies to a sheriff, right? The sheriff is the person who has the authority in a county, but then they deputize or authorize these uh, individuals known as deputies to speak on their behalf and to act with their authority and power. And that's very much like what the apostles are to Jesus. These were the people that Christ chose, handpicked, to act on his behalf and with his authority. And John is telling us that these apostles didn't make all this stuff up. They were teaching and passing down what they heard from Jesus with their own ears, what they saw him do with their own eyes, what they touched with their own hands. I mean, think about uh, Thomas where he's like, I have to touch and see. And, and Jesus says, just come here, put, put your finger in my side. That's not a story. That's a thing that happened. You know, And so he's now able to live from that place and tell everybody about what he's seen and done. It, it transforms him because he was with Jesus. And John then says, when, when you and I, everybody who comes after the apostles, when we receive this witness as God's word, when we take their story as the truth about God, we are included in their fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit through their lived experience with Jesus. Something supernatural happens. Uh, we, we get caught up in the fellowship with God. So the apostles are the ones Christ chose to help make plain the story of the gospel in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Right? It's not just in the New Testament. A lot of what we see in the New Testament are these guys interpreting the Old Testament in light of Jesus' story, of Jesus' life and ministry. We saw it last week when Peter preached the first sermon ever to be preached in a Christian church, and he reasoned with the crowd and used as his text exclusively the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't even written yet. The Holy Spirit led them to interpret the Old Testament and the church's current context in light of Jesus' story. And then their accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus, along with the letters they wrote to the various church communities across the Roman Empire, became the measuring stick, the, the, the canon. That word literally means a rule of faith or like how you measure something. 
And so the apostles' teaching became the measuring stick by which authentic understanding of the Hebrew scripture in light of Jesus' interpretation is measured. Like this became the standard of what faithfulness to following Jesus actually means. In other words, we trust the Old Testament because Jesus trusted it, and we trust the New Testament, the apostles' teaching, because Jesus entrusted it. And it's, this next point is really important. I know this is like a deep dive, but we're going to get super practical. But this is, this is a, a really good, important point. These apostles that Jesus entrusted didn't wield their interpretive authority to maintain some sort of institutional power over people and force them to submit to some arbitrary or self-serving ideas. No, these apostles were killed for their faith in Jesus and their message of his salvation. What power looked like in the early church was I had spent time with the real and risen Jesus and I'm willing to die for telling everybody that he is alive. Like that was the marker of their like authority in the church. They didn't want power for power's sake. They wanted to be faithful to the resurrected king and the new reality that they had witnessed with him. And then they wanted everybody that they met who didn't know Jesus to come to know him and be saved by him and to be with him forever because God loves them and he's calling all people from all across the world to himself. These words are written, as John says, so that you and I and all who are far off can be together with God forever. Listen to Peter, who's another apostle, one we learned about last week, writing near the end of his life, many years after that first sermon in Acts 2. This is going to be 2 Peter uh, verse 1, starting in, or 2 Peter 1, starting in verse um, 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live because I know that I will soon die, is what he's saying there, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, after I'm gone, you will always be able to remember these things. Three times he just repeats, I want you to remember everything I told you, all the things that I'm trying to teach you about Jesus, the stories about the woman at the well and the story about what happened on that lake in the boat, the story about this God and and the transfiguration on the mountain and I, I fully didn't understand it then. I want you to remember it if it's the last thing that I do. He's like a father longing to see his family do well and remain faithful once he is gone. And this is near the end of his life where he had every right, faithful servant, cash out that retirement plan, go back and catch fish by the Sea of Galilee, let the young bucks, let Timothy do it, you know? Like let Timothy just tell people about Jesus, but he's not. Even at the end of his days, he's committed to this call to preach the gospel and he has absolute confidence in the teaching that he is leaving behind. Why? Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. So many people think that what we're doing in this room is just like reading a weird book that doesn't make any sense. And sometimes it feels like that, (laughs) if we're being honest, you know. 
but like from the guy who wrote the book, he's saying, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter's like, we didn't make this stuff up. We saw him. We were there. And one of the, the key uh, apologetics that is most convincing about the Christian faith for me is that these were real people who really like died for their faith, right? Um, and all you had to do as an early Christian in the first church, for the most part, to like keep yourself alive when persecution came was to deny the resurrection of Jesus. I actually didn't see him raised from the dead. I was wrong. He's not the Messiah. All right, go in peace. You know. But these guys refused to do that. They had an easy out, but he's like, I saw it. <laughs> I was there. He loved me. He called me. He saved me. And I, I've seen this with my own eyes. I've been transformed. I've seen my friend transformed. I've seen this family transformed by the real resurrected Jesus. Kill me if you must, but I can't, I can't renege. <laughs> I can't go back. It is what it is. I love him. And he loves you, you know? That's the kind of love that we're talking about with this apostolic teaching. That's where the authority comes from. That's the spirit-empowered commitment to teach and remind and embody the words of Jesus that became the bedrock that the church is built upon. So what's the point? How does all this connect to that beautiful heaven-on-earth community we were just reading about in Acts chapter 2? Well, foundational to the community that can change the world through its witness to Jesus is an unwavering commitment to the words of Jesus. We can't say we want all the stuff without following the teaching of the one who told us to live that way. These words come to us through the apostles' teaching, handed down in the New Testament scriptures and guided by the Holy Spirit. If we hope to remain faithful personally as individuals to Jesus or to embody the spirit-filled love and power of the true church, we must devote ourselves to these teachings. And devotion is the language of love. See, the early church were mostly illiterate folks who lived off every word of God through oral tradition. Uh, they couldn't read. But they gathered daily to be with the apostles and those who had been with the apostles to hear and remember and repeat and embody the words of Jesus as told to them by the eyewitnesses. Now, eventually these words were written down, but long before that happened, the church's life became oriented around Jesus' teaching because they loved him. They loved his word. They wanted as much of it as they could get. And so let me ask you this morning, let me ask us, like, do you love God's word? I know that language can be scary for some of us. You know, you might say, I love Jesus, but I don't know about his word. I don't know about all this apostles teaching stuff. Been there. 
But what did Jesus say? John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Then he goes further and says, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. This is what God is saying. If we're going to take Jesus seriously, we must take him at his word. I can't say I'm devoted to my wife, Candace and then be unfaithful to her. I can't tell her that I love her and I want to be with her and then consistently disregard everything she tells me about herself and what makes her feel loved and how to rightly relate to her. Likewise, I can't say that I'm devoted to Jesus and then not do what he commands. Now, to be clear, these new teachings that the apostles passed down, they're often really encouraging and good and easy to get excited about. Like, they're full of good news that would have rewired the imaginations of the first hearers and and let them see God in a light that was more beautiful and nearer and kinder and like closer and more intimate than they could have ever hoped or imagined. And the teachings should do the same thing for us today. But there were also some really hard teachings. Let's look at these two categories. We have encouraging teachings, which are good news, right? God loves you. Hallelujah. You know, like, amen. Like, he sent his son to die for you. God loves you. Everybody in here is a person that God loves and wants to be with forever. Every single person. That's crazy. That's a really, really good news. Gentiles are now considered included into the family of God. Outsiders are welcomed in. No more racism and division at God's table. We're a family. We can be one together. Resurrection of the body. Death is no longer the end of your story. If you put your faith in Jesus, you will live with him forever. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, right? Like something we can't even comprehend or imagine how good heaven and time with God is going to be outside of time and beyond time. New heavens and a new earth. And, And then while I'm waiting to get there, sin no longer controls me. He set me free from the things that would make me hurt other people and hate myself and resist Jesus. I actually have power to conquer those things in Christ by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit that came down at Pentecost. It lives inside of me and can change my actions and desires so that I am one with God. That is all really good news, amen? But then there's these hard teachings, which are also somehow good news. God loves you, so love your enemy. Okay? But you don't know what that person did to me, God. (laughs) Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. For them, like for us, we're like, oh, I don't want to get canceled on Twitter. Twitter's done. It's X. Like, but for them, it's like persecution meant pray for those who are trying to kill you for being a Christian. What are you talking about, Jesus? No, you know? Give up everything to follow Jesus. Everything? My money, my stuff, my comfortable life, control, my body. 
Oh, yeah, I got one for your body. Crucify your flesh. Take up your cross and follow me. Put your flesh to death on a cross. Your desires that aren't from me and for me. It's a hard teaching. Be willing to die. If you love me, don't deny me, no matter what it costs. I don't know about you guys, but I don't typically wake up in the morning like super excited to crucify my flesh. You know? I didn't come here to hear a message like, oh, I, I want to die. So I came here for tacos, you know, to say goodbye to my friends. <laughs> like, oh. But this is the call. And yet even the most difficult teachings of Jesus are hard to deny when our church looks like that church in Acts 2. When people's lives are being transformed from sin and shame into freedom and joy and peace. When miracles and healings and powerful acts of God are breaking out all around the city. And when the community who subscribe to these teachings are loving one another in a way that is so totally other than anything you've ever experienced before. You know, I have a missionary friend who uh, works in a Muslim country and she tells me that the people she encounters tend to get saved from a combination of three kinds of encounters with God. Truth, love, and power. So truth, somebody explains the gospel clearly to them and um, they understand the, the truth according to the scriptures and it, it makes sense, it clicks. Love, uh, somebody loves them into the kingdom and shows them and demonstrates the kind of person that Jesus is to them through their own actions. And then power, somebody's body gets healed. Somebody's daughter gets healed. And, now I, and, and it was in the name of Jesus, so now I cannot deny that. And the first church is seeing all three of these things. I want so badly for Park Hill and All Saints to live at the center of all three. I so badly want to experience this kind of community. To be marked by a radical commitment to God's truth. To see uh, a love and generosity that extends to our neighbors that is otherworldly. And to have zero ability to explain the powerful, miraculous acts of God that are breaking out in our midst. I can't take ownership for it. I can't say I'm responsible for it. It's just God's spirit is here and he's moving in our midst. But if we want that, we got to be willing to submit. If we love him, we must also faithfully embrace the hard teachings of Jesus. And we do both inside the beautiful, messy, questioning, spirit-filled community of Jesus. Amen? And so whether you remain at Park Hill or join All Saints or end up in some other amazing church, we're all called to live this life, a life marked by obedience to the scripture, devoted to prayer, and from that foundation overflowing into a deep and enduring love for one another. And from that community, love goes forth and sends missionaries and church plants to the ends of the world, repeating and recreating these beautiful, messy communities until Jesus comes back for his bride. And so we're going to end with an imaginative prayer practice um, that might help us more willingly submit to some of the hard stuff in following Jesus together. Um, yeah, I have a few. 
Before we do that, I just have a few quick practical things that we can focus on when it comes to reading the scripture together. Hmm. But I think I just want us to pray and worship and maybe I'll just put those on a website or something because I want to spend a little bit more time in worship. And so if the worship, if you guys worship team could come up and we can just like respond in that way. Um, can you guys just close your eyes for a second if you're, you're comfortable? Um, there's a, a theologian named Miroslav Wolf and he has this theology of embrace. And in his, his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he talks about Jesus modeled a posture of embracing the other even when it cost him. So, so think of Christ on the cross, arms wide open, ready to hug and love and welcome in all who come to him. And he says that's the posture that Jesus had and that's the posture that we Christians today are called to. And yet, when we do that, when we open our arms up, we're, we're welcoming, inviting someone in, but we're also... We have this potential of being, of being transformed, of being, like it's, it's really vulnerable, and it might even lead to us getting hurt, right? <laughs> what do you do when you want to keep somebody away? You don't open your arms, you, you extend your hand, you push them out, or you, you close in and cross your arms, but no, Christ is always arms wide open on a cross. And I feel like before we can do that to our enemies, or maybe even before we can do that to ourselves, we have to be able to, to do that to Jesus. <laughs> We have to open our arms in a posture of embrace towards Christ. And yet, unlike every other person you will ever meet, when he moves towards you, it's not to hurt you or harm you or betray you or trick you. It's to love you. It's to bring you into an intimacy that you were created for and that you could never have imagined was possible. And that intimacy is not only, you know, it's beautiful and, and we want to welcome it, but it, it does require that we change, that we make space for him in our lives and in our hearts. So as we pray, I want you to imagine Jesus moving towards you. What is your posture right now? Are you keeping him at a distance, arms out? Are you closed off from him, huddled away? Or are your arms open in embrace? for the good and encouraging, but also for those hard teachings that seem impossible for you to follow or maybe even understand, but, but does your heart want it if it's of him because it's from him and you want him, amen? And as we move into worship, I wanna invite each of us to take a, a step forward today if your arms are closed, what does it look like for you to open up 
your, your heart's posture towards Jesus. It might even be helpful to open up your arms in a posture of receiving with your physical bodies if you feel comfortable doing that. But, but everybody in here, just what does it look like to open yourself up more to what Jesus wants to do, to his teachings, to, to his spirit at work in your life, even when it costs you? Father, help your children embrace your son by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us trust that you don't want to harm us but heal us. That you don't want to see us um, broken beyond repair. But any breaking that we encounter in your presence will help make us into the beautiful image of your son that we see on a cross and then also raised from glory. Help us trust you, Jesus. Amen.